0: Go ahead and turn to John chapter 4, if you would. We'll begin today in verse 16, but I'm going to recap a little bit while you're turning there. If you recall, the last two weeks, we've been preaching in John chapter 4. So this is kind of part three of a a sermon. So uh, if you weren't here the last two weeks, let me give you a little bit of a recap. You probably are familiar with the story, but Jesus is going through Samaria. He has chosen to go through Samaria, and he's going through Samaria, and he gets tired from the journey and rest at a well, and his disciples go into town to get some food and some provisions. And, and, of course, we know that as he's there resting at the well, a woman shows up, a Samaritan woman. And, of course, this was the reason Jesus went through Samaria in the first place. He didn't have to go through Samaria. There, most rabbis of the day would have bypassed Samaria, but he chose to go through Samaria because Jesus is the good shepherd and he's seeking out the lost sheep. And he had a lost sheep that was going to show up at noon at a well in Samaria. And so Jesus goes into Samaria. The woman comes out, and, and Jesus breaks all the social norms of the day by asking her for a drink of water. Not just a drink of water, a drink of water from her jar that she's holding. And uh, she is uh, a little bit surprised by this, wonders how he, a, a Jewish man, is speaking to her. Not only a woman, but a Samaritan woman. And Jesus responds by basically saying to her, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd ask me and I'd give you living water. So this intrigues the woman. She wants to know more about this living water. And so Jesus begins to talk to her about this living water. But she is still thinking on the, on the, the physical, material level. Can't quite understand what Jesus is speaking of here when, he, when he's talking about living water that, that, that wells up to eternal life. And so Jesus has to confront her with her sin in order for her to understand This good news message of living water that he's been talking to her about. And that's where we focused last week. But we're going to pick it up right there as well. John chapter 4 verse 16. I want you to stand if you would as we read God's word. John chapter 4 verse 16. We're going to read down through verse 26. This is the word of God. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem... And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, give us ears to hear. Apart from the Holy Spirit enabling our eardrums to receive the words correctly, we're lost. We're hopeless. We desperately need you, Father, through your spirit. To enable our ears to hear your word. and Lord, give me a mouth that can speak rightly. Keep me from speaking error this morning. And Lord, we just pray that you would get glory as your word goes forth. We know it doesn't return void. We praise you for that. You're the one at work here. And so God, we just want to come alongside and praise you for what you're doing. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we talked last week about the Samaritan woman. her. Confrontation with her own sin, and if you'll remember last week, I told you that I thought her her question to Jesus about worship was not a distraction. A lot of people think that she's trying to evade Jesus here and kind of kind of sidestep the issue and distract and lead to some sort of theological debate. And I told you I didn't think that was the case. Now it was a theological debate of the day between Samaritans and Jews, in re- as regarding where true worship was to be taking place. But that's not what she's engaging in here, I don't believe. I think verse 19, because of her response, calling Jesus a prophet of God, I think her response is, is number one, she's not denying anything that Jesus has said. She's not going to So okay, you're, you don't know me. She, 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 by, by saying that he's a prophet, she says, basically, okay, you're right, you're right. And secondly, by calling Jesus a prophet she is saying that he is speaking the very words of God. So she is recognizing that this man speaks, he's a mouthpiece of God, and, and I have sinned. So when she goes into this topic of worship, I think she's reacting the way a lot of sinners react when their sin is exposed. Okay, all right, what religious activity do I need to do in order to get right now? Okay, you, you say we worship there, you say you worship there, we say we worship, okay, what do, I, what do I need to do? Where do I need to go? I mean, have you ever been in that... I mentioned this last week, you ever been in type of a conversation with someone and, and, and their, their sin is confronted or, or their, their life is just so messed up and they say something like, I know, I know I need to get right with God. I know I need to get back in church. So, but there's so many denominations, I don't, I don't know where to go, I don't know what to do. And I think that's sort of her reaction here. Okay, I, I, where do I worship then? Jerusalem here, obviously you're a prophet, so tell me, where does it need to be? Another reason I think this isn't some sort of distraction that she's conjured up is because Jesus goes with her down this road. He's happy to talk about worship. Why? Because ultimately, that's what God is seeking, worshipers. He says, okay, let's talk about true worship. And that's what we're going to focus on today. What is true worship? I told you I wanted to spend a Sunday just focusing on that phrase, worship in spirit and truth. So we're going to do that today. We're going to look at how Jesus addresses the where question that she's asking. And more importantly, we're going to focus in on this phrase that he uses to describe true worship. Namely, that true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. But first, let's look at the dialogue between the woman and Jesus here. Let's start in verse 20. She says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now let me just give you a little bit of background here. When she says our, our fathers say we should worship on this mountain, she's referring to Mount Gerizim, okay, which is the alternate or the replacement site that the Samaritans have provided for worship to God. Now the, the Samaritans, if you recall, and I know I mentioned this a while back, but we, got, we need to have the historical context to understand why this is such an issue. The Samaritans were the people who had remained in Samaria after Assyria had deported the northern ten tribes. Assyria then repopulated the area of Samaria with foreigners. And these foreigners intermarried and syncretized their religion with the remaining Israelites. And what resulted was a perverted form of true Israelite religion. The worship had indeed been corrupted. They had rejected most of the Old Testament scriptures. We know that. They only embraced the the first five books of the Old Testament. And they built their own temple at Mount Gerizim. Now, the man who built the temple, by the way, for the Samaritans, was a guy named Sanballat. Do you remember Sanballat from the book of Nehemiah? And Nehemiah, Sanballat's the one giving Nehemiah and all the the Jews trouble as they're trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So there was an animosity there between the Samaritans and the Jews. And and it, it only intensified when the Jews were brought back out of exile from Babylon and repopulated Judea. And so... Sanballat had built this temple at Mount Gerizim, and the the Samaritans worshipped there. And Jesus says to her in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, he's referring to Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now he goes on to say, in verse 22, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. Jesus isn't going to let the Samaritans off the hook here. He doesn't say that, that worship's just whatever you want. You worship there, we worship here, it's all okay. Now we're going to worship in spirit and truth. He doesn't say that. Jesus is quick to correct her as well. You worship what you do not know. He is saying that the Samaritan worship truly is false worship. But he does go on to say that worship, because he is now here, is no longer bound to any location. He is saying, though, that the Jews up to this point had it right. It was their temple, their mountain, their sacrifices, their ceremonies, their worship that all pointed to Jesus. What does Jesus go on to say? He says, for salvation is from the Jews. And what is this salvation from the Jews? It's him. It's all pointing to him. That salvation he speaks of is himself, the Messiah, the promised one of God, the heir of Abraham, the seed, the stump of Jesse. That all came from the Jews, the Jewish people. The Jewish worship, the Jewish sacrifices, the Jewish ceremonies, they were all pointing to him. Salvation is from the Jews. But Jesus goes on, you see, now that he, the Savior, was here, he's saying that worship was about to change forever. The Jews had it right, but what they had was simply a set of shadows that were pointing to Jesus. And once Jesus came onto the scene, the shadows were no longer necessary, for the substance was here. Hebrews 10, 1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The shadows of the Old Testament worship, the Old Covenant worship, could only point to the Savior, but they couldn't ultimately save. But now that the true substance of worship was here, Jesus, the hour had come... To start walking away from the shadows and embracing the truth, the substance. And that's what Jesus means when he says in verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here. In the Apostle John's gospel, every time he says the hour, and he's talking about hour, he's referring to Jesus' death and resurrection. Almost every time, he's talking about An hour that's coming, or my hour has not yet come. He's referring to Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, she cannot understand this at this point, surely. But what Jesus is doing by talking about his hour, he is saying that now worship is going to be centered upon himself and ultimately upon his sacrificial death and his resurrection. Remember last week that I said old covenant worship was centered around sacrifice, But so is new covenant worship. It's just the sacrifice of Jesus, the substance that replaces all of the shadows. And the new covenant worship, as I mentioned, has replaced the old. That's why the curtain was torn in two upon Jesus' death. New covenant worship was now on the scene. It was coming and it was here. And it was not centered in any place or any building or on any mountain, but on a person. The person of Jesus Christ. The substance of true worship. He is now replacing all of the shadows. And John really focuses in on this all throughout his gospel. Let me just give you an example. Okay. Jesus, in John chapter 114, Jesus is now the new tabernacle. John 1.14 says the word became flesh and dwelt, which means tabernacled, among us. Every Jewish reader would have understood what that was. Tabernacle among us. Is that Jesus is now replacing the tabernacle. John goes on in John chapter 2 verse 19 to say that Jesus has replaced the temple. Jesus answered them in John chapter 2 verse 19. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So Jesus is the new tabernacle. He's the new temple. And now here in this passage he's the new mountain. He's the new tabernacle, he's the new temple, he's the new mountain. All these things were things where worship was centered around. He's saying, now I'm here, I'm replacing all of those shadows. All true worship is now centered on me. So this is the new covenant worship, centered on the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. And the mark of this new covenant worship, the genuineness of this new covenant worship, is that it's done in spirit and in truth. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, true worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So this is where we're going to focus the rest of our time today. Just looking at this worshiping in spirit and in truth. But the first thing I want you to notice is that the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth. Isn't that an amazing thing that the Father is seeking worshipers? Now, let me, first of all, I want to dispel a wrong interpretation of this Father is seeking. Don't look at the Father is seeking worshipers as God's up in heaven with binoculars looking for people who got it right. Oh, there's Peter. He's worshiping his spirit and truth. Oh, there's so-and-so. He's worshiping his spirit and truth. All right, That's not what's happening here. God's not up in heaven looking for worshipers. When the Father is seeking, we, we need to understand it in the, in the language that John uses. John always uses the language of a good shepherd or God the Father seeking through the good shepherd his lost sheep. He's going out of his way to find the lost sheep. He's going out of his way to create worshipers. And that's what we see here. This is not a... ...not God in the sky looking for worshipers. This is a proactive initiating God... ...invading the lives of false worshipers... ...and turning them into true worshipers of himself for himself. Turning true false worshipers like this Samaritan woman. She didn't have it right. And he takes her and converts her into a true worshiper. Or a guy like Paul... I mean, when you, we, we have to understand God's the one invading the lives of his children to make them his children. Paul wasn't a seeker on the road to Damascus. He was sought while he was on the road to Damascus. The woman at the well, same thing. The Philippian jailer, remember him? God's the one who invaded his life. And that's what we have here is God is not the responder. He is the initiator. He is the originator. He is making worshipers of himself for himself. And this is John's consistent testimony all through the gospel. John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now the fact that God is seeking out worshipers tells us a couple of amazing things. Number one, God desires his own exaltation. He is seeking Worshippers. He's not seeking buddies. He is seeking worshipers. He is seeking those who will put him above everything else. He is seeking his own exaltation. He seeks to be the center of our affections. That's who God is. And number two, he is giving us a gift when he makes us into people who exalt him. He seeks us and makes us worshipers of himself. And that is the greatest gift God can give you, is to turn you from a false worshiper into a real worshiper, a true worshiper. Now notice what type of worship he is seeking. He wants true worshippers, and as I said already, true worshippers are those who worship in spirit and in truth. So we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. And And I heard an illustration, and it's somewhat helpful, so I'm going to go ahead and give it this morning, but I want to go beyond it. I think one of the things that Jesus is hitting on here when he talks about spirit and truth is one of the problems we constantly see in worship. And so let me see if I can illustrate it with the Wizard of Oz. So what is the character who has no brain? It's a scarecrow. Okay. Now, some people when they worship God are worshiping completely out of emotion or or out of the heart or whatever we might want to call it. And they're flopping around everywhere, but they're not worshiping with their mind. And that's the way some people worship. If you look at worship in our nation, in, our, in churches, they seem to kind of go to two extremes. Either there's really heavy emotional worship or there's heavy mind-focused worship. So there's, there's some worshipers who act like they don't got a brain. There's, there's, they're, they're being ruled and regulated by their emotions all the time. But then there's other worshipers that may be like, well, the tin man who doesn't have a heart. And they're just as stiff as can be. All right? have no emotion whatsoever about their worship. So I do think that when Jesus says spirit and truth, he's talking about a a unity of those two things and a balance between those two things. And we'll talk more about this because I don't think it's one or the other. And there's this genuine spirit and heartfelt worship that comes about with true worshipers. And there's this genuine truth-focused mind where you use your mind to worship. and, And it's happening in And so there should be this perfect blend of this when there is true worship. But we're going to talk about where that true worship comes from here in a second. Because it's not just about making sure my mind's focused on the right thing and making sure my heart's focused on the right thing. We need to talk about what brings about true worship. But first let's talk about what worship in spirit is. First of all, on your notes there, worship in spirit is internal. It is internal. Okay, worship in spirit is an internal reality. It's from the heart. That's at least part, that's not all, but it's part of what Jesus is saying here. It's spiritual in nature, thus it is measured by inward formation and not necessarily by external forms. It's true that Jewish worship and Samaritan worship, for that matter, were focused on outward forms. Rituals, sacrifice, ceremonies, etc. We've already discussed that a little bit. But God always desires inward heart transformation from his worshipers. Even in the Old Testament, God desired inward heart transformation, right? I mean, he, David said this in his great psalm of confession, Psalm 51. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And the priest of God, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 2, the priest of God were chastised by the Lord. It says... God says this, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart and give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. The priests in Malachi's day were were just carrying out the rituals, but it wasn't true worship because it wasn't from the heart. So true worship has always been internal. It's always come from the heart. And even conversely, in our new covenant age of worship, it doesn't mean we don't do outward forms of worship either. I mean, we are commanded to do the Lord's Supper. That is an outward expression of worship. We're commanded to do baptism. That's an outward expression of worship. So outward forms still exist, but the question is, what makes the true worshiper true? And it comes down to a matter of the heart. Also, by focusing on the inward nature of worship, Jesus is saying that true worship now transcends distinctives and geographical locations. Matter of fact, this new covenant worship reality... ...is a better and more true worship because... ...as you read in verse 24, it says... ...God is spirit and those who worship him... ...must worship in spirit and in truth. The worship that most honors God... ...is worship that is most conformed to his nature. His character. And God is spirit. He is not confined to any location... He is not confined to any place, any mountain, any building, anything material. Now, the true worshipers in the Old Testament and the remnant of the true worshipers that remained throughout the time knew that. They knew God couldn't be contained in a temple. But many false worshipers had begun to think that God was, God was confined to specific locations. But he's not because God is spirit. So true worship is not bound up in material expressions. So true worship is inward, but we also need to understand that true worship is also passionate. It's passionate. It's heartfelt. So it's from the heart, but it's also heartfelt in that it involves the emotions. Certainly the emotions are involved in true worship. There is a stirring up of our heart when we're genuinely worshiping. Our emotions are stirred up. Emotions such as, that we're commanded to have by the way... ...such as reverence, awe, fear, adoration, contrition, joy, gratitude, peace, hope, love... ...they flow out of true worship. God is seeking worshipers who genuinely desire Him from the heart wholeheartedly. Of course, emotion alone is not good. For emotions, as I said earlier, are not suitable guides for worship... Your feelings are fallible. Let me say it again. Your feelings are fallible. There's only one infallible guide. And we'll get to that in a second when we talk about truth. But your emotions, they're okay. They're good. We should have them. But don't rely on them. Jonathan Edwards once said, I should think myself in the way of my duty. That's a long old English way of saying my duty is... To raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can. So Jonathan Edwards understood that his role as a preacher was to raise the affections, the emotions of his hearers as high as he possibly could. That's why I believe preachers and preaching should be done with passion and emotion. But, he goes on to say, provided that they are affected with nothing but truth. And with affections that are not disagreeable to the nature of what they are affected with. True emotion that flows from true worship, true affections, are evidence of genuine belief and trust in God. Jesus, quoting from Isaiah in Matthew 15, 8, talking about those to who he was preaching to, most of, many of whom claimed to follow him. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Heartless orthodoxy is no orthodoxy at all. The assertions of the lips should be accompanied by the affections of the heart. Worship in spirit. It should be noted that the fruit of the Holy Spirit that we we read of later in Galatians, the fruit of the Holy Spirit involves the affections. Love, joy, peace. Right? And then it's followed by internal and external dispositions... That flow out of those affections, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But that leads me directly to the next and the most important thing that I believe Jesus means when he says, true worshipers worship in spirit. It is internal, and it is passionate, but most importantly, it's alive. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that it comes from hearts that have been regenerated. True worship cannot come from a heart that has not been born again. It's not been renewed. God is spirit and we must worship him in spirit. And as we've already mentioned, God being spirit has called us to worship him in a manner most consistent with his nature. Thus we are to worship him spiritually. But man has a problem. Man is born spiritually dead. And apart from the regenerating work of God, we are hopeless, We are helpless and we cannot truly worship. True worshipers need to be worshipers who have experienced John 3, 6. John 3, 6 says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. If you look at your ESV, I don't know about the other translations. If you look at your ESV from John chapter 3, verse 6, it says, That which is born of the spirit, the first spirit is capitalized. It says, is spirit, and the second spirit is not capitalized. Meaning... That our spirit, anything alive that we have, flows out of his spirit at work in us, regenerating us. Jesus said to Nicodemus that only that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So when Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that true worshipers must worship in spirit, he must mean that true worship only comes from spirits that have been made alive by the Holy Spirit. Jesus isn't going to contradict himself between Nicodemus and the woman. He's saying the same thing. So true worshipers have to have a spirit that's been made alive. In Philippians 3, three, Paul is speaking to the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers were teaching false doctrine in the church, saying that outward physical uh, manifestations or practices, I should say, such as circumcision and observ- observation of the law, those were necessary for true Christian worship to take place. But Paul refutes their claims, and then he says this, For we are the circumcision who worship... By the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. True worshipers put no confidence in the outward actions of the flesh, but know that true worship flows inevitably out of hearts that have been made alive. For hearts that are alive are hearts that have been set ablaze for God, they've been turned toward God, they yearn for God. As we read in Galatians 4 6, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, abba father god has sent his the spirit of his son into our hearts now when people ask should i ask jesus in the phrase should i use the phrase ask jesus into my heart this is the closest you're going to get to it but how does the spirit come into the heart god has sent the spirit of his son into the heart god's the invader He's the seeker. He's making the true worshipers. Then we cry out, Abba, Father. Then we desire God. Only those born again can cry out to God in genuine worship. So sometimes I get the question, what, what what is the worship service for? Who is it for? According to this, it can only be for one person. Those who have been born again. The worship service is not for the lost and the seekers. The worship gathering of believers is for the saved. Because everyone else in here singing that isn't saved isn't worshiping. Worship flows out of hearts that have been regenerated. You can't, non-believers can't worship God. Have you ever been to a cemetery and heard by yourself and heard singing going on? Dead men don't sing. Dead men can't worship God. They can't. They're, enabled, they're not able to. So if you model your worship service around, let's just get as many lost in here as we can, guess what? It's a graveyard. We want alive worship. We want the lost to come in, yes. We want to do what Paul says to the Corinthians. If an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will then worship God and declare that God is really among you. Because what we want is the dead person to come in and say, what is going on here? I mean, when you think about, the, I grabbed this right before I got up. Think about the lyrics we sing. All right? Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. Terubim and seraphim falling down before thee, which word and art and evermore shall be. That sounds like lunacy to a lost person. What's this glassy sea? What are these cherub things? What's this? crowns laying them down what are you doing it doesn't make any sense of course it doesn't make sense the scriptures make no sense to the lost person unless the holy spirit works to open their eyes to see the truths of god and so when a lost person comes in here they should hear those songs and go i don't know what they're singing about but i see this guy over here and he looks alive and he's singing these songs with passion and i want what he's got that's how worship happens in the church Or should happen. I want us to see and savor Christ. I want us to worship in spirit and in truth. Worship in spirit is internal. It is passionate. But most of all, it's alive. So to sum it up, let me give you a summary statement here. ...for that whole first part. To worship the Father in spirit is to worship with regenerated hearts... ...fueled by the Spirit of God. So if I want to just summarize what worship in spirit is... ...that's it right there. To worship the Father in spirit is to worship with regenerated hearts... ...fueled by the Spirit of God. But we don't just worship in spirit, we worship in truth. Worship in truth is worship, first of all, that is rational... What do I mean by that? I mean that it involves the mind. It involves the mind. And when your heart has been made new and your mind has become renewed, guess what? You actually begin to see the world as it really is for the first time. And so it's okay to think about the world, science, and everything else. Because actually, those who have been born again are the ones who actually see the world rightly. And so we want to be deep thinkers True worship involves a mind that has been renewed and thus involves the intellect. The Christian's mind is one that has been open to how the universe actually works. And what's the purpose and meaning behind it all. And so we're called to continually worship God with our minds. Romans 12. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is what? Your spiritual Worship. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Ephesians 4.22 tells us to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are the earth. Romans 8.5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Christian worship involves the mind. We think. It's one of the reasons I actually like some of the older hymns. You have to think. That's why I like reading Jonathan Edwards. I have to actually think. Wow, he said all that, I would say in two words, in 20. Okay, great. Let me think about what he said. We think, we read, we study. It's part of the Christian experience. We are thinkers. The mind is used, but the mind has to be set free by God. Do You see, prior to spiritual birth, the mind cannot understand the things of God. We already mentioned that, but I'm going to read it here. 1 Corinthians 2, 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand, its mind, the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Another reason the worship service is for believers. Like I said, I want the lost to come in, as many lost to come as the Lord sends or as you invite, whatever. But the service is for the believers because the things of God are folly to the the lost, aren't they? I mean, would you guys enjoy me coming up here and speaking gibberish? I hope not. You want to hear the things of God. And the only way you can understand the things of God is if your heart's been made alive and your mind's being renewed. Christians, therefore, are to be thinkers. Matter of fact, we're supposed to be the best thinkers in the world. Our minds have been renewed. We have insights into the universe that no one else has. And we're commanded to continually sharpen our mind. But how? How do we continually sharpen our mind and renew our mind and focus our mind on the things of God? Well... The next thing I want us to see is that worship in truth is biblical. And here's what I mean by that. That true worship is regulated by and saturated with the word of God. Regulated by and saturated with the word of truth, the Bible. This truth, this word is what guides us, guards us, forms us, and fills our worship service. The infallible, absolute truth of God's word is what keeps our worship focused... If the Spirit fuels worship, okay, if the Spirit, as I said earlier, is the fuel of worship, then truth is the focus of it, or how it gets focused. Let's look at one of the very first Christian gatherings of worshipers. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, what does it say? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, this is the apostles' teachings. Now, I don't have time to go through a, a lengthy argument about why we can call this the apostles' teaching. But basically, Jesus spoke to his, to his apostles. The Spirit reminded them of everything Jesus said and imparted truth to them. They then gave the church the word of Christ. What we have here is the teaching of the apostles. And if we're going to be like that first church which was devoted to the apostles' teaching, we will be a church that's devoted to the word of God. We will be absolutely devoted to this word. True Christian worship is guided by and filled with the truth of God's word through and through. We must be careful to let the Bible guide our worship and not bring strange fire into the house of God. We must be careful not to make sure that all our worship is filled with the word of God. The best way to worship God is with what God has already said about himself. If you want to worship God with what you think about God, fine. Fine. But what you think about God is nothing compared to what God thinks about God. Let's worship God with what he says about himself. That's true worship. That's accurate worship. God cannot lie. He speaks truth. So we don't want to rely on our straying emotions and our creative thoughts about God. We want to rely on what God has said about himself. So our songs need to have Bible in them. Our prayers need to have Bible in them. Our sermons need to be straight from the Bible, and anything else we do needs to be dripping with Scripture. And true worship points us to salvation, doesn't it? As Jesus says, salvation comes from the Jews. Second Timothy three fourteen. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Which leads me back to where we began. Worship in truth is worship that is Christological. It's rational, biblical, biblical. Christological. You may say, well, Steve, don't you mean Christ-centered? No, I mean Christological. Christology is the study of Christ. That's what we're doing every Sunday. We're coming here and we're looking at this. What does it say about Jesus? It is centered on Christ and what Christ has done. If our worship is biblical, then by necessity, it is also Christ-centered. A lot of times people say, well, yeah, we're teaching the Bible. But if your study of the Bible looks more like self-help from the bookstore, from Oprah, then it's not accurate Bible study, at least. Bible study leads to Christ, points to Christ. Jesus said in John five thirty-nine, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Luke 24, you, Let me just stop right there. You see, the Pharisees were studying the Bible, but they weren't studying the Bible the way it was supposed to be studied. They weren't seeing Christ. Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning himself. He didn't interpret all the scriptures concerning how to feel good when you're down financially. All the scriptures concerning what to do when your marriage is messed up. All the scriptures concerning this or that. He said all the scriptures concerning himself. The whole scriptures, the gospel, it all points to Jesus alone. And in that message is the solutions for everything else you're dealing with. But it's all pointing to Christ. The moment you begin to take this book and point it in the wrong direction, you've abandoned the solution to the problem you're trying to fix. The solution is in the cross, in the gospel, in what Christ has done to bring broken sinners who have all kinds of problems to himself. So it's Christological. Worship in truth. You must be immersed in the revealed truth of God in written form and immersed in the revealed truth of God in the flesh. Jesus is The word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus would later say to his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Hebrews 1 teaches us that long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by the Son, by his Son. So worship in truth is worship that is logical, biblical, and Christological So to sum that one up, to worship the Father in truth is to worship with renovated minds focused on the Son of God. So let me put those two together now. To worship the Father in spirit is to worship with regenerated hearts fueled by the Spirit of God. And to worship the Father in truth is to worship with renovated minds focused on the Son of God. I think that's in a nutshell what worshiping in spirit and truth is all about right there. Do you see the trinity at work there? The Father is seeking true worshipers. And true worshipers are worshipers whose hearts have been renewed by the Holy Spirit. And whose minds are focused on the truth. The truth incarnate, Jesus Christ. The Father is worshiped. The worship is fueled by the Spirit. And the worship is focused on the Son. It's the way God designed it. Spirit and truth. That's the way God designed it. Matter of fact, the role of the Holy Spirit is to point to the Son. Jesus said in John 16:4, "He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you." So we can safely assume that if our spirit has been made alive by the Holy Spirit, then our spirit should be pointed at Jesus too. So hopefully you've seen it already today that spirit and truth are inseparably tied together. The heart is set free by the spirit to worship the truth. So the mind that worships rightly in the truth is a mind that is also, or a heart that is also worshiping in spirit. And the heart that is truly alive and worshiping spiritually is a heart that desires the word of God written and incarnate. In summary, no one can worship in truth if he doesn't worship with an awakened spirit and vice versa. No one can worship with an awakened spirit without worshiping in truth. So, spirit and truth are unbreakably tied together. So really, there there is no tin man and scarecrow. In true worship, there shouldn't be tin man and scarecrow. It's inseparably tied together. And let me tie it together one last time. I know it's getting late. One last time. Give me 30 seconds. 40 seconds. Let me tie it together with, with two verses. Because I think a lot of times when we think of worship, what do we think of? Songs, right? That's worship. Now we got to listen to the preaching and then we're going to worship again. All right? No, no. It's all worship. Matter of fact, if you take away the preaching, you've gutted the worship. Now, let me give us two verses, though, that specifically address singing, worshiping with song. Colossians 3.16. Listen closely. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So so what's driving it? It's the word of Christ dwelling richly, truth, worship and truth. Now you may not know this, but Colossians and Ephesians are sort of parallel epistles, probably written at the same time by Paul, carrying a lot of the same themes in them. So let me go to the parallel passage in Ephesians five, verse eighteen. Ephesians 5 says and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery but be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. Spirit and truth. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you Harbens. And don't be filled with anything in the world that, that, that can control you but instead be filled with the spirit. Let him rule. Those two things happen. Word of Christ dwelling richly, being filled with the Spirit. Guess what? That's true worship. That's true worship. Let's bow our heads now. Let's close our eyes. And let's just ask for the Holy Spirit to do a work in us. And if there be anyone here this morning who, who doesn't have that awakened spirit. I want to speak to you here in a second as well. But let's, let's bow our heads and close our eyes and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to be true worshipers. We want to worship you in truth. We want to worship you in spirit. But we know the culture we live in. We know the times that we're facing. We know the challenges and the distractions of our own heart. We know our own corrupt desires. Oftentimes drives us to means of worship and methods of worship and modes of worship that are not ...in line with spirit and truth. So God, please forgive us for our sin. And God, turn our hearts toward you and toward your word. We are so weak. Even those of us in here who have been made new by the Holy Spirit... ...our hearts have been made new, our minds have been renewed... ...we are still so desperately weak. We desperately need every day to be sanctified by the truth... Heavenly Father, I remember the prayer of Jesus when he prayed to you, sanctify them by the truth. So we wouldn't be sanctified by the truth. We want to be made holy by the truth. So God, we pray that you'd keep us as a church in the word. Father, I pray that the word of Christ would dwell richly here. And God, we also pray that we'd be people filled with the spirit Flowing with love and joy and peace toward one another and toward you. So, God, we ask for you to do that because we can't fabricate that. Doesn't matter what song we like to sing with the right kind of beat and the right kind of background music. Or the lighting in the room. Or the right kind of seats. The right kind of building. We cannot fabricate true worship. But God, we're all experts in faking it. So forgive us our sin and stir us up. Make us true worshipers. You're seeking true worshipers. We pray in your holy name. Amen.